This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have with us Duncan Kinderdine, who's a member of Sustainable Terrace in Central Otago. We'll be talking about the new international airport that's planned for Central Otago near Terrace. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast, then going to Community or Chaos. Welcome to Community or Chaos. Hopefully it's more community and less chaos today. Thank you and good morning, Marvin, and morena uh, to your listeners. Well, we're here to talk about the uh, planned international airport at um, Taurus. Can you, first, can you tell me... What got you interested in sustainability and the local environment? Um, yeah, well, I, I guess that there's there's two parts to that, isn't there? There's the sustainability part, and then there's the local environment part. And uh, if I start with the local environment, the, the, the journey there for me started, uh, I guess, when my grandfather bought land in Luggett, of all places, in, uh, in the 1940s. He bought a little little block of land which had a little stone fishing hut on it um, and the family owned that for well over half a century. Um, I was born in metropolitan New Zealand in Wellington and we lived in Auckland and Wellington and London before I first ever got down to central Otago. Uh, about the age of 11 I Popped out of the car at at, at uh, Luggett. Um, you didn't fly to Queenstown in those days, particularly. Um, we drove down, uh, and I remember stepping out of the car and just going, "Why? Why has no one, no one, no one brought me here before? Why? Why? What's this great secret that's been in the family? You know, it was a wonderful place of uh, golden grasses with a with a, a little creek, the Luggett Creek, running along the bottom of the property, and and um, you know, there was the trucking company across mm. the road. There was agriculture. There was obviously some tourism. But the population in, in those times would have been about 10,000 in the district. 
uh, versus mm. the 77,000 that is talked about at the moment. There's a so, lot of nostalgia for central Otago, particularly as it was. I have a, a relative who um, spent all her summers in Wanaka, and that was some time ago, and it's and still a, lo a love for central Otago. Yeah, and I guess the interesting part is it's, um, I do have to remember that I'm, you know, very lucky to be able to have that connection to that wonderful place without um, casting it in resin, <laughs> if you like, and and holding it as something that should never change. I mean, um, the changes are both positive and negative that one can see uh, around central Otago. One of the positives you see is the the growing interest in uh, the removal of pine trees and the increasing reforestation and, and predator-free activities. Uh, but the negatives are in intensification, urban sprawl, de decrease in quality in waterways. Um, we still battle with rabbits and other pests. And I guess um, that that, that sort of balance from what is a very fragile, uh, what can be a very fragile environment is is what um, kind of started leading me to a, a view around sustainability. Um, did you I go was, for walks sorry? since when you first arrived, when you were a young person, did you go for walks around the area sometimes? Uh, well, I used to go exploring, I guess, more than walking as a, okay, as a, sure. as a young teenager. we explore up the back of Luggett Creek yeah. along and there's a series of small mining huts that were there mm. um, relatively untouched and uh, not not well known um, and then down the creek to the Clutha Matao um, which at that time the Devil's Elbow or the Nook as it's known uh, the vast majority of the water was in a whirlpool and ran around and underneath itself, which was quite an impressive sight mm. to, to a young, impressionable mm. lad. Yeah, um, well, And that, that, that sort of wandering around the, the landscape and the country gives you, uh, I don't know, um, uh, some sense of what it's like. I have some worries about people not walking in rural areas. Um, I remember as a child I was... My love of my dog used to take me for walks at about eight thousand feet, and so I had a certain love of the mountains that just um, stays with you when you're young. I mean, when yeah, you get that was, experience when you're young, you you get a love of the outdoors and the love of the environment. That's you, I don't think you can really get it on a computer or, or a screen. <laughs> well, I, th I think we're, what we're seeing. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about kind of that nostalgia. I mean, there's there's lots of people going to to these parts of the country now, and and still being very um, taking that opportunity to get engaged. Mm. We're seeing lots of people get um, involved in mm. you know rock climbing, for instance. Mm -hmm. Now it's a very very much a growth sport that takes them out into mm. the outdoors. Um, Should we the, be concerned that? Every New Zealander gets this opportunity if they want it. That we should do things that enable ordinary people to get into the outdoors in an enjoyable way. 
Oh, well, I definitely think it's it's part of the New Zealand story. It's not all of the New Zealand story, though. No, um, but... And I think, uh, you know, it is, but it's definitely part of it, that ability to connect with the environment, whether it be mm-hmm. uh, fishing, you know, the coastline, mm-hmm. um, rivers, forests, mountains, you know, the plains around central Otago, for instance, which, that you know, I'll always carry with me. Um, the... The, the sustainable part around sustainable tariffs, I guess, is also part of this conversation, which it was formed when um, the airport uh, proposal was announced in, in, in 2020 um, by a bunch of locals, some of whom knew each other, not necessarily all of them, uh, from a wide variety of backgrounds, from horticulture, agriculture, some, some retired folk, um, uh, but all interested in in Terrace as a place to to live and grow, um, and as a as an environment which was uh, as, and is very special. Um, and it's about how we balance those mm. uh, those drivers of yeah. of development and growth with protecting something that is quite fragile. I guess one of the things that worries me is that often we've made our decisions as communities. Maybe it hasn't necessarily everybody in the community, but the people that have the wealth and power to develop things, develop things. And the first thing they think about is the profit, or is it more profitable? Uh, For instance, it's a lot of central Otago is really good for sheep farming in a way if you do it properly. But it's not so good for dairy farming, yet dairy farming's a big deal now in in all of South Island, including Central Otago. And it doesn't have too much to do with what's good for the environment, or even what's best for that kind of, whatever kind of farming you want. It's more that Fonterra's made it um, very, um, much a profit-making decision. And you probably need to to make a lot of money to pay off your mortgage or, you know. Well, uh, I mean, you raise an interesting point. I think the intensification of agriculture particularly um, is quite challenging in that environment. Um, There's a relatively low soil profile, um, leading straight to often gravelly layers leading down to aquifers. So the transfer of of nitrogen and things um, can be pretty quick. Um, And the the challenge there is what's the, you know, it comes back to sustainable in its original sense. What is the long-term environment able to to cope with um, down there? Uh, and if you look at the amount of water that's required for the pivot irrigators, um, there's a real challenge there. I mean, there was one proposal for an irrigation organisation that was looking at 20 cubics uh, water take. Now, that's 20 cubic metres a second. The low flow in the Clutha has been measured at 100 cubic metres a second. And the place that that water was taken from is what they call a, a gallery, or was going to be taken from, was a gallery, which is basically a strip in the gravel 
next to the river. So effectively pulling the water out of the same area. Um, so that's 20% of the low mm -hmm. flow going to one irrigation scheme. Now that, that scheme didn't, didn't progress, but you get to see a sense of the scale of the impact in an area which has, you know, the second or third lowest rainfall in the country. Um, there's a little map you can you can dig out of, you know, the the dry and and um, arid areas of the country, and just the little spot of terrace is in the is misses the rain shadows of the mountains, and that particular area is very dry. And so it relies on the the rivers and the streams for that irrigation, and they are limited. And the other thing we know with climate change is that those um, flows are going to become more and more variable. So don't we need to actually consider the long-time environment, not only for the environment's sake, but even for our sake, when we make decisions about, when we make economic decisions? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that when we talk about these sorts of development proposals, there's two conversations, isn't there? There's one is how do we make that um, uh, the most appropriate for for humans, for for their growth and well-being and sustenance? Um, but it's an embedded conversation with how do we ensure that the environment uh, can now repair itself? Because we're no longer talking about maintaining; we're talking about repairing if if uh, the UN is to be listened to. So. Those, those, those two paradoxes um, sometimes, because they seem to be often in, in opposition, um, are the challenge because we require long-term um, jobs. Uh, we need the, the, the environment and the community be, to be supported. And how do you do that when you're talking about paving hectares of landscape with car parks and McDonald's? Um, it's interesting. It's about really about our whole society in a way. I've got a, a friend who's a clerk of my religious group and says maybe we ought to be like the Amish and the whole community make decisions on development and is it going to enhance the community? Is it going to enhance nature or will it? Now, you don't have to be as strict as the Amish, but there's something in that in what he's saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a group called the New Zealand Initiative, uh, and their head uh, tends to be a sort of right-leaning right think tank, but their head often talks about the direct democracies uh, of Switzerland um, and the small local, you know, local people making local decisions. And, and that's really highlighted at the moment in Taris, where you've got this proposal which is from uh, a, another council-owned a, a, a council-owned company from outside the region uh, you know making what you know trying to make decisions which will have a massive impact okay. on the local community and the environment uh, not really wanting to engage with those people that don't think they're great um, and and how do we how do we as a community represent that? I mean, just last week a survey by the uh, Wanaka Stakeholders Group showed eighty odd percent of their um, residents or of people um, 
don't want tariffs to go ahead. Our surveys in Wanaka, um, in Hawea, Cromwell, uh, sorry, Hawea Terrace, plug at Queensbury, um, show similar sorts of people that don't really want um, this proposal to go ahead. Because I think we also need to be really clear that as an ex-CEO of, of Christchurch International Airport put it, um, airports uh, are not about being airports. They're about land development companies that park planes. And the, the driver here is... is is um, tacked around, if you like, the excuse of providing more and more people into the into the region, which is a whole other debate. But the reality is the, the value add for the organisation comes from the land development, the property development, the hotels, the car parks, the car rentals, the petrol stations, the, the, um, the industry, the, the um, courier okay. depots that will be taken away from places like Cromwell. Okay. Uh, and put on this land in the middle of nowhere. Can you tell? So this is the international airport's more than just a runway, isn't it? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And who's who's building it? And so, why? And well, why? Well, and why? What do they gain from it? First, who's <laughs> building it? Hopefully, hopefully. Oh, who wants to build it? They're not building it, but. Um, the people that would like to build it are Christchurch International Airport. Uh, Christchurch International Airport is owned by, 75% is owned by the Christchurch Shitting Holdings Limited, um, which in turn is owned by the ratepayers of Christchurch. 25% of Christchurch International Airport uh, is owned by you and me, taxpayers of New Zealand. So uh, this is a publicly owned entity, really. This is a publicly owned entity, although they are they go to some great length in any time we ask them for some information under the Official Information Act to point out that somehow or other they're special and while we're while they're publicly owned, they don't feel like they need to answer our questions. Isn't this um, a problem with state owned enterprises? I mean we've had problems with uh, the power company um, because they're that power poles and so on in central Otago and in Dunedin go because they wanted to make pay dividends. Uh, sometimes the the purpose of uh, these companies that are publicly owned have been so privatized in their view of the world, in their view of their function, that the, the thing that they, the main driving force is dividends to um, whoever they're um, accountable to, and also it makes them l very much less accountable to the public and accountable to public authorities, such as city councils or the government, than they would would have been before Roger Nomics. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. I can see. So I'm a little conflicted. I've got a background in, in infrastructure, um, having worked uh, in social and economic infrastructure for the last almost 30 years. Um, uh, and I can see why when they set up these organisations, they wanted to put a step in between 
if you like, the politicians and the running of the business. And I think we see that playing out at the moment uh, in the challenges that Waka Kotahi faces with uh, its long-term program being changed every time there's a change in government. Um, and and that, that becomes really hard to, to manage because large-scale long-term infrastructure takes decades from inception to delivery. Uh, you know, 15 years is, is kind of a, a bit of an average uh, line in the sand. So you can see why you don't want those decisions changing every three years or something. Mm-hmm. However, um, I agree with your point, which is, and, and this point was made very well by an engineer in Wanaka called Nick Page, who, who wrote a letter to the uh, to Crux, the, the news at, um, uh, source in, in Queenstown, uh, you know, that that these CCTOs are created to efficiently deliver services to local authority ratepayers and that they were to be council controlled by those by those councils. So hang on, where, where does the conversation with Central Otago District Council or Otago Regional Council come in for this conversation? And I think the the sad thing is that this um, this challenge that we're grappling with in terms of an airport and uh, you know land development in in Terrace by Christchurch International Airport uh, comes from when uh, Auckland Airport bought into Queenstown Lakes um, Airport Company, and uh, we hear stories of real anger at, in Christchurch. Why why didn't Queenstown come to them? Um, and instead, uh, what has happened is that some of that um, long haul or that international travel has moved from Christchurch Airport directly to Queenstown. And I mean, just to add kind of part of that conversation, um, uh, the, the, the Christchurch Airport currently runs at about 50% capacity. So uh why why would we put them in charge of building a new one um because we can't afford to invest in things uh in infrastructure in new zealand that isn't going to be efficient and that isn't going to help decarbonize our future and and equip us for a climate challenged environment i wonder if the goals of infrastructure should be Service and not dividends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, that hasn't worked for electricity, at least not for ordinary people who can't afford to uh, create their own electricity. And it doesn't seem to work for for keeping your infrastructure going in power, in power companies. Maybe we need yeah. to have a... a Another look at how we, the purposes of our infrastructure and uh, state-owned enterprises. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's definitely some challenges around that. I mean, if we look, if we go back to, to your example there of the Aurora network um, and the pole replacement, um, I mean, I, I'm not an electrical engineer, um, and I, I wasn't. I'm not fully across the state of their network, but from what I read, there's there's clearly some challenges. 
Uh, and the other thing that Aurora is having to grapple with is this problem of growing your network and having the funding available to do that when you've got a long-term payback period. Um, now, to, to your point, is it about service or is it about profit? Um, I know uh, as I as I'm you know as I get feedback from the community through various sources in the wider region. Um, that the performance of the Aurora network can be a bit of a challenge. And one of the challenges for, again, for Taris and the local community is that the airport is going to require a massive upgrade to the network. Yet it is on record as saying it will not be paying for any infrastructure outside of its site. So who's going to end up paying for that infrastructure and who will be responsible mm. if the infrastructure doesn't work. Who will benefit from this airport? Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, the The arguments vary uh, quite a lot. It started off with Malcolm Johns in the paper talking about flying uh, air, big jets direct from New York to Terrace. It then very quickly morphed to freight. Uh, now the story is a little bit more about the locals flying. Just just so we're clear, there's 77,000 people <laughs> in the wider region and we already have an international airport in Queenstown. So um, I'm not quite sure how many flights a year we'll need to take to make this, this airport stack up, but that's another debate. Um, and then it's just purely mass tourism growth now. So the argument that's being presented is that um, if you take a straight line forecast of of tourism uh, at about 4% into the future, there will be um, something in the order of another 4.5 million people requiring to land in central Otago or wanting to go to central Otago, and therefore we need the new airport by you know, 2050. So I think I'd just like to pick up a couple of those points because the freight one's a really interesting one. So there will be a potential benefit to cherry growers. So cherries, as we know, have a relatively short window for when they ripen and when they're prepared to pick um, of roughly six weeks, mid-December to, to early February. Um, and... Uh, the vast majority of New Zealand's exported cherries come from central Otago, uh, and the volumes are only predicted to grow up as one of the intensification um, activities in the horticulture sector is in cherries. So vast amounts has been invested around Terrace in that, which is um, uh, great in terms of a, a local product um, with a high value. Um Put it in comparison, the kilogram of cherries brings the exporter $16.91 in mm. 2022. Where will they be going, uh, Japan or, or Europe? Uh, the vast majority goes to Taiwan, China, and Vietnam. Okay. Um, so that, 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 that story um, is, is an interesting one. And as I say, there's, there's been a vast investment in cherries in the region. So... There's two challenges with that. One is um, 
it's only that six-week period that you need to get those cherries out. Um, what happens for the other 46 weeks of the year uh, to the demand that you've created? And freight on, air, on planes needs to be um, reciprocal. So what are we bringing in flying into the area in tons, you know, thousands of tons a week um, that, that's going to meet that demand? And I, at the moment, that doesn't quite seem to stack up to my, my um, uh, trying to see what the, mm. the, the trade balance is um, with that freight. Um, because I think the the other trick is that it's only that revenue might be six hundred thousand dollars for the airport company. So the 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 debt for four hundred million dollars, which is a figure that they keep quoting, um, even though they put tell us that they haven't done a budget. The debt for them will be in the order of the interest bill will be in the order of thirty million dollars a year. That means we need fifty times the volume of cherries to pay for the interest bill on building the airport. Do you reckon that once they actually build it, or maybe they're halfway built, they'll actually be, end up going to the government asking for more money? Uh um. <laughs> well, as I say, I've worked in infrastructure a lot, and uh, there's a lot of challenges around delivering infrastructure to the initial budgets at the moment. What is kind of scary for people like myself is that Christchurch Airport keeps saying that they haven't done a budget and they haven't done a business case. It sounds like certain political parties. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staring well out of of the. Yes, yeah, so let's not go there right now. <laughs> let's not go there. Um, but I, I so to that I I, I look at um, Te Waihanga, the Infrastructure Commission of New Zealand, and they are bringing some real rigor to the thinking around what is it we need to build, how do we fund it, how do we maintain it. What are the long-term needs for Aotearoa New Zealand? And right at the start of their thinking is, well, you need to have a clearly defined need. You need to have a clearly communicated and transparent conversation with the community that's going to be affected and, and the community that will be, get benefits. You need to be able to afford the outcome of this process and you need to be, um, you need to have really strict governance around that. Yet, we, we, I sit here and they, they bought this land at twice the going rate for lands, secretly, under the auspices of supposedly putting cherry farms in. They said very clearly that they didn't need a small finger of land on the edge of the property, yet they bought that just this year. Uh, so they spent over $40 million in land, and they don't, in theory, have a business case. Now, um, I don't know, to your, to your point around council-controlled organisations, I don't know a private sector organisation that would spend that sort of money without a very clear business case uh, that was very, uh, very positive 
to take up the risk of the investment and to be blunt the um, um, you know the the impact risk for crush at city council is the school strike for climate change was in their council building yesterday about Tarras Airport. Well, if I was a Christchurch ratepayer, I'd be up in arms. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, if if you have a council-controlled organisation that has a spare $400 million uh, that it's basically not going to make a profit on for quite a number of years, if not decades, um you would have thought that they might be using that locally to reduce the rates impact just now. Or maybe um, help with their own traffic problems. <laughs> well, um, it, you know, it's really tough in Christchurch. They've got, some, they've got some really big challenges left over still from the earthquakes. Um, although there's a lot of great infrastructure that's been built back. Um, you know, the, the sewage plant that burnt down the other day um, and the smell that comes from that, you know, they've got massive things that they need to be putting money into and um, really challenge ratepayers. So, yes, if I was a ratepayer, I would be I would be asking some very serious questions of my, my counsellors. Well, I'm going to play some music now and then we'll come back. small corner of paradise and though the battle has cost her in health and in friends I know that if she had to she'd do it all again for nothing worth saving Comes easy or free Nothing worth fighting for Comes with a guarantee That you're gonna win, my friend Without sacrifice For if something's worth saving There's always a prize now I know a young girl Who chained herself to a tree On a lovely green island Where the wild rivers run free Spent a night in the jail cell Hungry, frightened and cold For something we're saving when she was 16 years old 
for nothing worth saving Comes easy or free Nothing worth fighting for Comes with a guarantee That you're gonna win, my friend Without sacrifice For a something's worth saving There's always a price Someday you may be called on To stand up and fight For what you believe in What you know to be right So fight or surrender One day you might have to choose But just remember If you don't fight you lose For nothing worth saving Comes easy or free Nothing worth fighting for Comes with the guarantee That you're gonna win, my friend Without sacrifice For if something's worth saving There's always a price Yes, if something's worth saving There's always a price Now that was uh, Eric Vogel, something worth saving, there's always a price. We're talking with uh, Duncan Kinderdine about the uh, Terrace Airport proposal. And um, you can podcast this later by going to oar.org.nz and then going to uh, podcasting going to community or chaos. How, what does flying, particularly international flights, do for uh, our carbon output and our ability to mitigate climate change in New Zealand? Well, that's uh, that's quite an interesting one because it's quite a complex answer. Um, I think there's a there's a really good paper if for your listeners if they're interested, which is called Managing New Zealand's Greenhouse Gas Emissions from Aviation, put together for the Institute of Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University by Robert McLaughlin and Paul Callister in, in 2022. Um, they talked about uh, the international emissions growing from. Uh, 1.3 megatons in 1990 to 3.9 megatons in 2019. Um, and the aviation rose eight, from 8% to 12% of New Zealand CO2 emissions over this period. So one of the challenges, though, is that international flying is currently given a free pass. So while... Uh, farmers, uh, truckies, a um, whole bunch of other people, a general person in the community is being asked to 
uh, account for and, and figure out their carbon footprint, at the moment, international flying is, is not being counted, um, although we expect that to change in the near future. So 12% of our CO2 emissions, and uh, let's put that in comparison, um, manufacturing is 7.5 megatons, agriculture, forestry and fishing is 1.4 megatons, land transport is 14 megatons. So, you know, it's a, it's a big chunk. Um, added to that is the impact of um, the pure carbon, but also where it's released and the other components that are released at the same time and their effect on greenhouse gases, um, which almost doubles the impact. So um, when you look at it like that, increasing international long-haul flights uh, is not something we should be considering if we're trying to reduce our carbon emissions. Um, I read somewhere that the per capita carbon emissions in New Zealand of, of everything is something like 12 tonnes. Uh, it's 3.7 tonnes just to fly one person to and from Europe, from New Zealand. So if we want to reduce <laughs> our impacts, uh, then clearly that's a very simple way to do it. We've got both, in this case of flying, we've got both the personal and the public. Like, I frankly have told my sister I won't be able to visit America. The cost is one thing, but carbon's another thing. They're both important, and they're both painful, actually. But can we go ahead and live as we are? and expect that our children will have a good life and our grandchildren will have a good life if we don't do anything to change? Um, it, it's hard to see at the moment a way of increasing flying and increasing carbon emissions of this scale and the environment being sustainable. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a climate scientist, but I do read that um, you know, in theory, we've just passed the 1.5 degree threshold uh, and, and things just get a lot more challenging from now on. The hard part from that is we look at the floods in Hawke's Bay and we kind of go, well, they've always had floods in Hawke's Bay. You know, I, I spent time after Cyclone Bowler in the, in the um, 80s helping dig houses out of, out of silt, um, for instance. But they're, they're just going to become more common and, and more challenging. The, the, the large parts of, um, of Europe are experiencing temperature growth at twice the global average, places like Switzerland. Uh, and they're, you know, they're all really challenged. So it's hard to see that we can do both. And when people talk about electric planes and hydrogen, um, I think we do just need to take a wee moment to reflect on what that means. So am I saying no one should ever fly again? Mm, 
I don't think I am, but what I am saying is because it's really important for families and 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 commercial activity um, and that freight that we talked about for cherries, for instance. But it's going to be a whole lot more expensive um, into the future and a whole lot more challenging. And and electric planes are unlikely to be able to fly a very long distance uh in your or my lifetime, um, albeit that they may be perfect for um, people landing in Christchurch and wanting to come to Queenstown, the Mackenzie country, Alexandra, Tianau, short hop, um, sort of more regional flights uh, definitely have potential. Hydrogen, however, is a whole nunder, another bundle of wax because it's only a real benefit to us if it's green hydrogen uh, and that is hydrogen made by um, from water hydrolyzing water uh, with renewable electricity or renewable energy um, it's currently 25 times more expensive than hydrogen made from carbon sources uh, and it has and you require four times as much fuel for a plane if it's hydrogen because of the energy density differences. Don't the people that are talking about using hydrogen instead of uh, petrol, don't they realize this? Well, um, <laughs> the only thing you can say is, yes, I assume they do. Uh, there is that point, of course, that ideally we still have planes in the future you know flying at mm. uh, long distance but it will be we all need to wake up to the fact that it will be extremely expensive it will also be increasingly turbulent <laughs> um as as the atmosphere gains energy uh and it will be it will be back to a very rare thing rather than people jumping on the plane and going to bali for a long weekend well, doesn't this actually point to the fact that we need to ch change our economy and change and plan on changing the way the communities live if we're going to continue to live? Well, I, I mean, the very simple one is decarbonizing our transport. I um, mean, wouldn't process. it be make more sense instead of building a spending billions on a new airport, spend billions on uh, trains? Hopefully, yeah. electric train, and spend maybe experiment with things like um, blimps or uh, passenger ships that are more like passenger ships, not not ocean not uh, ocean liners as we now know them. Well, I think if we talk about the transport network in the south um, for a minute, it's quite interesting because. It does actually have uh, everything. It has a relatively good road network, um, although there might be a few more potholes than there used to be. Um, it does have rail along the coastline, um, albeit not too many passenger services. Uh, it has now got a fantastic and growing network of cycleways, which is a, a great way for slow tourism. Um, uh, for people to go around through slow tourism and to see the countryside. Uh, and it is 
um, overly represented already with with airports effectively um there are um you can fly internationally into Christchurch uh Queenstown and Dunedin uh and Invercargill also has a runway long enough uh, to land international planes from Australia um and so you ask yourself, well, do we actually need to invest in another airport in this area? And the answer is probably no. All of those mm. airports have capacity at the moment. Most of the a, a significant chunk, uh, like the majority of tourists arriving into Queenstown, arrive by road and not by plane. Um, and if you go back to that study in 2018, that where are people actually going? They're going to uh, Pia Tahi, Milford Sounds. They're going to Queenstown. They're going to Araki, Mount Cook, uh, and the West Coast. So currently, all of those are, are road-based activities or another plane or a helicopter. So how we deal with uh, doubling numbers into each of those areas um, without investing in uh, pub, you know, greater public transport, whether it be buses or trains, seems to be quite uh, unrealistic to me, given at 800,000 people, Pia um, Pia Tahi, Milford Sound, became, in a lot of people's eyes, not a very good experience. Well, why shouldn't we actually consider having more rail, even rebuilding rail to central in the long uh, term. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, um, I'm a big fan of, of catching a train. I like trains. Um, I do see the challenge of population density, uh, our geography, yeah. um, and, and the rail network, but there is no reason why we couldn't have a train. Rail has always in. been something whether you look at Europe, Japan, or any country where they are successful, it's always been subsidized by the government because it's turned out to be good for the economy of those countries. And it's certainly good for the environment. I mean, I look at neighborhoods all over New Zealand, particularly in the cities, but all over, and people tend to have not one car, but two or three. If you have the proper public transport, you wouldn't need two or three cars. Yeah, well, it's and an it's unsustainable place. that we can think of a world where every family has two or three cars in the future. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's, that's your, uh, dystopian. <laughs> well, I guess New Zealand's got the is it the first or second highest car ownership per capita in the world, and one of the challenges was that is uh, where do they go when they come here? So some will be a 1967 Chevy that is beautifully maintained and, and looked after and rolled out twice a year, but a lot of them uh, just end up worn out wrecks. Um, so every car that comes in has either got to be managed here, um, rubbished here, or or somehow recycled and sent back. Um, both of those systems are not. Uh, particularly well functioning at at the moment in terms of um, the embodied energy into each of those vehicles. And when you asked about my sustainability journey, that's one of the things. It's just logic. We've only got a certain amount of energy to go around. 
uh, if we're putting it into things, we need to make sure those things last a long time uh, and um, are recyclable and um, provide the services and 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 benefits to to the wider community. Uh, vastly increasing car ownership um, is not necessarily going to help that. I guess quite. I always wonder why we don't have this a discussion on what's viable for our economy and for our, our uh, resilience in New Zealand, and what's and why don't we also have a discussion about taxation? All those things are connected, but we the political leaders seem to be mostly afraid of having a discussion, and I wonder if they trust us enough well i think i mean i think for terrace that's one of the questions which is it would be really nice to sit down as a community with the airport company and say well what what are what are the options here rather than you having to spend millions of dollars on uh, very fancy colored graphics that don't actually represent the truth um to uh, to try and persuade people that everything's going to be sweetness and light when actually what might be the best thing to do is actually build a township on that land that is, mm. you know, utilises the large degree of solar that's in the area, provides uh, a high degree of wastewater treatment which members of the community connect, can connect to so that there's not... Um, some of the challenges that come with septic tanks, you know, if 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 that sort of conversation at a community level was able to be had, um, we might end up with quite a different outcome, and something that equally made them money as developers, but actually had support from the community, the broader community, because one of the real challenges in the region at the moment is housing. I mean, we've got this crazy situation where we've got tourism tourist staff um, who are working very hard in Queenstown but are living in these crammed into 10 people into a garage in some slumlord's um, house to try and get by. I mean, that's not the community any of us wants. So um, we, we couldn't agree more. There is a broader conversation about what does the community need and therefore what could this land be used for? And at 17, at roughly the equivalent in terms of energy and water and wastewater output is a small town of 1,800 people, which is a third of Alexandra, uh, maybe that's the right answer for this use of land and resources rather than another airport. Well, I hope that you can have this conversation and I hope you can make this an issue where people are actually accountable for what happens. Yeah, well, we're, we're looking forward to continuing this. Um, if any of your listeners are interested, there's a website, which is sustainableterrace.com, uh, and there is a petition on the Parliament Petitions website. If you go to the Petitions website on the New Zealand Parliament page, 
and filter for Terrace. You'll see us there. Please sign that if you're interested or uh, reach out and contact us directly through um, that website. Um, we appreciate the, the growing level of interest in this um, crazy proposal and the support from the community is much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Have a good day. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.